You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a 30-year member of the United States Marine Corps, uh, who spent time in mortuary affairs, also a civilian law enforcer. We'll get to him in just a moment. First, our normal announcements. Please continue to uh, leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts as my brain, uh, my hamster fell off the wheel. Leave us some Apple reviews. Uh, give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show as well. Follow us on other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Smash that like button. Give that thumbs up to all the content there. We certainly appreciate you guys uh, following along. Don't forget our, about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hasaground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the, at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. And uh, you guys can do all your normal Amazon shopping. You'll get redirected to Amazon. Do all your normal shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way to help out veterans charities just by going to hazardground.com first. All right, this week's guest, as I mentioned, a uh, retired Marine, retired at the rank of Sergeant Major, spent 30 years in the Marine Corps, all in the reserves. So a man after my own heart who spent a lot of time in the reserves, uh, as uh, I have in the Guard, along with active duty. Uh, two deployments to Iraq and multiple other overseas assignments throughout his career, uh, including in mortuary affairs. Also, spent time as a civilian law enforcement officer and part of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, working EOD and multiple other tasks there. He is Jamie Carnes joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Jamie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. Uh, we was looking. We talked before we started recording. Just so everybody has. It's crazy that he was actually stationed down the block from like literally less than a hundred yards away from where I used to live in Smyrna, Georgia. So uh, yeah, serendipity, right? Comes comes around for all of us. A small world, smaller military. But uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, and and love to know um, how you got your start in the Marine Corps. Uh, I'll throw out a, a, a small disclaimer and hopefully by the end of this, um, be able to, to you know, have it all make sense and, and circle back, you know, full circle. Um, but I, I delayed entry in um, to the Marine Corps in 1988. Um, I spent my entire high school senior year uh, under contract. So the, the hell raising and the ripping and running that I had been doing um, had to, had to kind of get quelled a little bit. So uh, you know, did that, went to boot camp in July of 89 uh, and then subsequent, you know, uh, various MOS schools and, and other combat uh, type training um, that the Marine Corps would, would put us through. Uh, yes, I was a career reservist, uh, did do the deployments um, like most everybody. I think it, at some point or another through the, the 2000s decade, you know, got touched uh, in some form or fashion. Uh, with either presidential recall orders or, or something like that. But um, I, the disclaimer would be that if it hadn't been for the Marine Corps, uh, I, I would not be here probably today uh, as far as I'd probably just be getting parole from prison. Um, you know, well, because that's that's that was me back in the, the mid to late 80s. Um, never never ran afoul of the law. However, uh, I, I definitely fractured, you know, <laughs> one or two along the way and skirted, uh, you know, uh, some of the folks in my local area growing up. But yeah, so the Marine Corps was a huge um, win for me. Uh, and, and I call it that because 
the Marine Corps did more for me than I think I did for it, uh, for the institution. Uh, I did leave my mark, uh, I think, in a positive way. Um, position, improvements, position improvement is always continuous. So I tried to leave things you know, better than when I found it with the various units that I was in. Um, but I knew at an early age that I would I would be in the military uh, some way, some form, somehow. Uh, grandfather in World War II in the Pacific, uh, dad in the 82nd, um, other cousins and whatnot, family members that were in uh, the Army and the Marine Corps, respectively. Uh, also family ties to law enforcement. It took a little bit of time before the light came on with me getting into law enforcement, um, but I did. And uh, it was a fantastic journey, fantastic ride. You know, I feel like I did pretty, pretty good work um, and, um, you know, met some great people along the way, uh, both on the military side and, and the L.E. side. Uh, I, 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 explain what sort of trouble you were getting into. I mean, like if you if you knew that there was going to be some level of military service in your in your life, given the amount of family members that you had, uh, why were you so off the uh, the discipline course growing up? <laughs> well, you know, coming from a broken family uh, at age, you know, 14 and a half, uh, alcohol was a uh, major fuel, which was, uh, you know, uh, don't shy away from it. Um, you know, had to had to rein that that part of my life in, um, you know, just very I wouldn't say, I had, you know, any kind of, you know, no diagnosis of oppositional defiance. But when my parents split up, then I was hell on wheels you know, uh, both in, in the house and, and at school and whatnot, made, made good grades, went, went to college, got a degree. Um, but the, the Marine Corps was really that wake up call. Like I was saying a few minutes ago, just a little slow on the uptick, you know, to, uh, to get into the, the, the military situation. I had a, a good friend of mine at the time, it was a year ahead of me in high school. He joined the Marine Corps and he came bebopping in one day and he said, Hey man, you got to check this out. You gotta, you gotta do this. And I'm like, all right, because I had gotten, not to bore the audience or bore you, Mark, but, um, you know, had gotten, you know, uh, approved, congressional approval letters to go to one of the service academies to be a pilot. That, that was my dream. Well, the, uh, the fall of my freshman year in high school, I got portholes, you know, glasses. And um, I, I knew right then and there that that, that was going to go a, a wash as far as getting into, you know, the, the, the front seat of a, of a fighter or, or, uh, you know, any kind of aircraft. So I put that on the back burner, played sports, um, did have that at least, you know, going for me at the time as well, uh, played sports in high school, very active. Um, and when my, my, my friend and, and comp- compatriot came in and said, Hey, I joined the Marine Corps. You got to get on board and do this. And I'm like, all right, because we ended up being at the same uh, unit at the same time uh, there in, uh, you know, north central North Carolina. So uh, it's what, where I grew up uh, in the in the mountains. Uh, so, you know, like I said, went to boot camp in 89, um, had a had a blast. Um, for me, it was it was fun. You know, it was that rough and tumble, you know, type type situation that the Marine Corps provided and offered. Uh, and it was right up my alley. I was a small, small person at, you know, five, seven, maybe five, eight, you know, on a good day, uh, weighing about 100 and 135 pounds, you know, so folks looked at me like, you know, they'd size me up and, you know, that was, you know, a mistake, but, um, you know, got, got through it and, and excelled 
and just from there, I never looked back. You know, I had a goal um, and worked with my dad, uh, had a fantastic recruiter. Uh, sometimes people don't always have those stories uh, in their background where they get, you know, messed over a little bit where the recruiter promises or says one thing. But lo and behold, um, you're you're doing a different you know, MOS or, or you know, 13 Bravo or something like that, you know, in uh, in, in another branch of the service. So um, with my dad's experience, um, I got a I got a great deal. Uh, I became a 2111 in the Marine Corps, which is a small arms repairman or basically breaking it down a little further as an armor. So I worked on small arms uh, weapons uh, up to and including, you know, the 50 cal uh, Mark 19s and, and all that. Our armory was small in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, so we, we went up to, um, you know, at the time, the the. The Echo 3, the, the M60, but then we transitioned over to the 240 Golf. Um, so I had that, you know, in, in, in my repertoire, if you will. So how does the whole getting into law enforcement start? I mean, is it, is it concurrent as you're getting out of high school and, and going in the Marine Corps or no? No. I, um, I got a degree from Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And um, in, in psychology, of all things, <laughs> you know, and um, and started out as a counselor, uh, believe it or not. And um, given what I've already said or what I've already kind of outlined a little bit. And uh, that was that was one of the goals. It was, you know, I wasn't going to go active duty. Uh, I wanted to you know, try it out and see, you know, how I would like it um, and had good people in my corner that that helped me, you know, help me through you know, those decisions. And, um, you know, hit my first hit my first unit after boot camp and, and the schools I, I mentioned, uh, armor school and absolutely loved it. Um, the contract was a six by two uh, back in those days as a reservist, because my goal was, you know, to get a degree. Um, and I accomplished that and uh, was drilling at the same time. And I get a, a rap on the hatch one day from uh, someone from the admin shop. And they were like, um, hey, you're about to fall off contract because the time went by so fast and it was so fun um, that I didn't realize that eight years, literally, because I had already rolled into my by two uh, years where I was not obligated. I could have walked in on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday and said, yeah, I'm going to hang it up, you know, within that two year you know, window. Um, and I get this this. Uh, admin person coming up saying, Hey, you're about to fall off contract. I said, contract for what? You know, I, I was literally caught off guard, you know, cause you know, I was just in the moment where I was just enjoying what I was doing. And um, so we've got to get you reenlisted. I said, well, you get the paperwork today and I'll sign it. You know, I said that, you know, like most ghosts, you know, quick, you know, Ricky tick. And um, so it worked out. So I extended, that was my first of many uh, extensions. I got to the 10 year mark and kind of had to, you know, look at that crossroad, and say, okay, what do I want to do now as far as stay or, or get out? And the decision was easy. You know, it was a no-brainer for me, given the size of my brain, I guess, at the time. Um, it wasn't difficult. And I was like, hit me again. So I got another four years and another four years. And, and along and along, you know, obviously promotions had come. And, um, you know, I became a, a platoon sergeant, uh, the staff NCO uh, IC of the uh, of the armory. Uh, I was, you know, a trusted confidant with the, with the, the commanding officer, you know, given that that position and obviously the hardware that I was in charge of. And uh, just kept reenlisting, 
you know, and then so the, to answer your question about law enforcement, I because I was still active and had to keep up, you know, a level of you know physical fitness and that kind of thing. I played basketball, played softball with you know a bunch of friends of mine who were in the local uh, sheriff's office at the time where my office was just down the hall in the in the government center. And uh, I get a call one day from a lieutenant over the investigations division. And he said, hey, you want to can you have lunch tomorrow? And I said, absolutely. And uh, so we meet for lunch and he pitches this idea. He says, we need a, a juvenile investigator, you know, and said, you will put you through school. We'll cover your, you know, a lot of your costs. Um, and but, we, you know, we need a you know, we need a juvenile investigator in the criminal investigative division. And so I wouldn't I didn't have to work the road. Um, a lot of this stuff that I'll hopefully be able to touch on was very, very fortunate uh, for me. Again, good people seeing me as, as you know, someone with potential and set me up for success, you know, many, many times, you know, over my adult life. And um, so I, I took about a six thousand or so thousand dollar pay cut. And I said, yeah, when do I start? You know, because that's what I had come to want to do. I was kind of like a, a, a badge chaser. And if you will, I would do ride alongs, um, you know, while I was in the, the counseling phase and, um, you know, just eating it up, eating it up. It was just, a, you know, the adrenaline, the, the, the camaraderie and that kind of thing. So when he offered it to me, I, I, I didn't hesitate. And so that's where I started in 1998 in uh, in law enforcement in, in north central western North Carolina. Um, okay. So I, I just want to back up for a second. Um, when you had enlisted in 89, the Gulf war kicks off in 91 Marines played a large part in that. Did you think you were ever going to go? I did, but I missed it literally by, um, three months, you know, and wow. there wasn't, there wasn't much demand because I was a reservist. First of all, um, they didn't do what they did in 2001 and two. And then again, in 2003 with, with Iraq. So in 1991, um, there was a more, there was a larger call for the active duty forces to, to be cobbled together um, to get into that conflict. So when I say I missed it, um, there was not, there was not a demand or a great demand um, for an armor. You know, the active duty folks had that nailed down. Um, You know, they had more rabbits in the, in the, in the cage and they, they needed to, to bring me on, and I had that that limited skill set. I had not yet um, gotten into different MOSs or gotten into different fortes that would be of any you know great benefits because the unit I was in was a communications company uh, as a as a private PFC Lance Corporal etc. You know coming up to you know before I attained E six, and so there just like I said there just wasn't a demand for an armor. So I, I maintained, um, helped out where I could, you know, did some extra duties here and there um, for, for, you know, the unit, uh, given that some of the guys did get pulled, you know, for their 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 expertise. And it was all in common. So um, I just you know went on. I, I didn't do really anything that I would say to speak of until I moved based on a career move down to Georgia in 2000, 2001. Right. And we all know what happened in 01. So. Well, where, where, where did it fit in for your timeline, your transition? Where were you on 9-11? What, what was going on from a civilian standpoint and military? Sure. Um, I had 
gone to a profiling school um, with the sheriff's office uh, at the Western North Carolina Justice Academy. And I kept noticing a, a gentleman coming in and out, you know, throughout the course of the week. And so me being the curiosity, you know, curious type that I, I generally am, um, I just hit him up on like late in that week, like on Thursday before we were testing out on Friday and all this other stuff. And I just introduced myself and I said, I said, hey, if you don't mind, who are you? I, I've noticed noticed you coming and going at your leisure, you know, all week. Well, it turns out he was a GBI agent who had already been through the FBI Behavioral Health Services um, or Behavioral Health Unit. And he was a certified um, profiler with the with the Georgia Bureau, the, the state bureau. And we had a great conversation, super personable you know, man. Um, he reaches in his you know, dress shirt, breast pocket and says, hey, by the way, we're doing a hiring process here coming up in about two months. If you're interested, um, you know, go online, you know, da, da, da. And he gave me the particulars and um, and the rest is kind of history. I moved down to Georgia after I went through the process, got selected. Um, so so I, I did pass the background in the psychological, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, and started with the GBI in February of 01. And obviously, a few months later, um, I was at home getting ready, uh, getting ready to, to do my days, you know, tasks, you know, at my at my office and always had the television on, you know, catching the news, you know, and I saw what unfolded um, with the towers. And I knew right then that it wasn't a matter of if I were going, it was just a matter of when would I get that call? Well, it didn't take long, you know, so we got, so the unit I transferred to in Georgia in 01 was a headquarters and service company. So we were cooks, bakers, and candlestick makers. We had all the commodities, uh, you know, admin, com, uh, motor tea, supply, you know, the whole nine yards. We were, we were a service company. So the Marine Corps and the Department of Defense was concerned about the potential for casualties and literally deaths that would occur with a large scale invasion going into Iraq. Right. So the only thing the Marine Corps had at the time was a legacy unit from Vietnam with a bunch of young guys that was the Graves Registration Platoon. So it wasn't even a full company. So the Graves Registration Platoon in Dayton, Ohio. So these guys got spun up, you know, early and they were the subject matter experts. So they went to Marietta, Georgia, Anacostia, Virginia, um, and uh, I believe Colorado Springs in Colorado and trained. Uh, we did a crash course, two-week mortuary affairs, um, you know, course, if you will, for lack of a better word, with those guys. And that was our mission. That's what we were, that's what we were tasked with. Did you know anything about mortuary affairs at all? No, um, quite honestly. Did it, but, did it bother you? Did it scare you? Like, what's your reaction to this? Um, really just the unknown. Um, the, the volume with which that we were getting, you know, um, you know, the, the fragos and, and, you know, the initial, you know, op orders and stuff like that. We didn't know what we were, you know, getting into. So in the, in the meantime, um, we did the, the, we leaned forward with the units until they all kind of melded together in Marietta. Um, 
in in 2003, early 2003, and we put together the plans to how we were going to, you know, how we were going to structure ourselves and who was going to be in charge of what, you know, when, where, and how. Because um, we had close to 550 Marines for just the Mortuary Affairs mission when you when you combine the three units together in, in 2003. So I ended up being the staff NCOIC. My CO became the, uh, the OIC, and we were attached to the Game Force Commander out of one, you know, one MEF, Marine Expeditionary Force, out of Camp Pendleton. So I deployed in 03 out of Pendleton. And then in 05, I deployed with two MEF out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. So, you know, I made the decision and I was approached, uh, me and, you know, a cadre of others, you know, given what we had done in 03. And I'll come back and come back to that a little bit to, to help, you know, give some clarity on that. But, you know, the dwell time for the Marine Corps was supposed to be a minimum of 18 months up to five years. Well, nobody knew um, that at least at my level that they were pushing down to us information wise it, that they anticipated it going that long. Well, obviously, it went much, much longer um, than anyone, you know, when you factor in Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Um, you know, the, the, the long war, you know, 20 years, um, almost 21. And. So we were leaning forward, you know, putting our sticks together and how we we're going to, you know, how we we're going to push out uh, in 03. Uh, and then again, obviously, in 05. 03 was a different animal um, because everything was new. It was fresh. Nobody really had much of a clue. There were a lot of side conversations about, you know, this, you know, like you ask about fear and, and that kind of thing. You know, the trepidation was, you know, what what are we getting into? What, what do we anticipate? Well, we couldn't know, you know, it's about like a pop Warner squad going up against, you know, the new England Patriots back in the heyday, you know, kind of, kind of thing, you know? And so, but we, we adjusted. Uh, I think we like typical Marines do is, you know, we improvise, we adapt and we overcome. So um, we push out in March of, of 03 to Pendleton and then off we go. We, uh, we we based out of Camp Iwo Jima in Kuwait okay. before we were pushing sticks for we missed we we watched the shock and awe and the basically the invasion it, from the Chow Hall at Camp Pendleton. So about about forty eight hours or so later, we were on a C five, you know, going across the country across the pond and you know, made a couple of stops, but then we spiraled into um, Kuwait International. And, um, you know, we, we traveled, you know, during the night, uh, we took, we took fire coming in. Um, and, you know, we got, got on the ground safely and mop level, uh, I believe it was mop three on our way to mop four. Uh, that was a, that was an interesting, I loved to have had a. I only <laughs> chuckled because, um, they sent us there with mop gear and nobody ever actually needed it. Not for like a second. Well, as we were, as we were coming in and the, the airport and the, the surrounding area, you know, in Kuwait there was, was taking, you know, uh, rocket attacks and, and missile attacks and that kind of thing. They said, we don't know what the conditions are going to be like on the ground. So everybody suit up. And I know you and your audience, um, having gone over there and flown on different, um, different, uh, vehicles, different aircraft, 
The C5, you sit up in the top of it facing facing the tail, the tail fin. All right. So you're facing backwards in in in, in respect. So the the forward the forward end of the of the seating uh, was about probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 45 to 50 degrees. Meanwhile, you know, 50, 60 rows back, the kids, the Marines were stripped down to their, you know, almost their skibbies because it was so hot back there, you know? So then they give us the order, you know, to go to mop level. And <laughs> it looked like a gear bomb went off in the middle of that C5, you know, <laughs> in the, in the passenger area. And so, but we, we did it and, and got suited up and, and we hit the ground. We were ready to go. Uh, where did you land in Iraq? At Baghdad? No. So in 03, we flew into Kuwait City okay. and, and then pushed north. Yeah. And then in 05, we landed at oh. T. Yeah, I'm talking about in 03, when you pushed forward, where did you push to? Oh, uh, we pushed Marines out. So we set up, we set up a theater mortuary collection point. Um, and so again, because of the front front load and the planning that we had done up front, we had, we had broken down the, the basically squads, we called them sticks. And so we hadn't been on the ground long when an A-10 dropped, uh, a depleted uranium round. Uh, it was a friendly fire incident, uh, on the Nazaria bridge and Nazaria was a hot spot, um, you know, during the initial phase initial push. So we sent sticks forward. I was still in Kuwait you know, at that time. And we sent the sticks. The first place they pushed to was Nazaria. And um, because we had so many folks, we found other ways to bypass the river and sent sticks forward to link up with victory units up in, uh, up in Baghdad, you know, and that kind of thing, Fallujah uh, and, and all those areas that were, were some of the heaviest initial fighting, you know, was taking place so it was Nazaria to start with and what would what would be done is we basically recovered every single service member regardless of service wasn't just Marine Corps centric it was it was theater wide it was theater mortuary all right so we owned the AO in that respect so we would link up with the different units um, traveling either by convoy or by air um, to get to these spots where we were constantly getting, you know, uh, you know, operational information um, of, you know, of the following. Let me understand. You had to go to where you were needed, right? Like you guys didn't set up a, for lack of a better term, a casualty collection point anywhere in Iraq. You were just called forward as necessary to come pick up the fallen remains. Yes. And we were we were kind of the mortuary QRF, if you will, for lack of, you know, it's kind of a bastard, you know, my my bastardized terminology. But right. but yes, but because because we could radio ahead and message ahead to the, the forward units, they knew we were coming. Now, we weren't always well <laughs> received from the standpoint of, you know, we, we got called all kinds of um, colorful names from Grim Reapers to you know, you know, those kind of those kind of things. So we took it in stride. Hey, we had a mission. We understood the mission. We had planned and prepped as best we could. Um, and so when they would link up the, the forward, our forward elements would link up. Then if there was a firefight or, uh, you know, any kind of attack or anything like that, you know, an explosive you know, incident, 
you know, our guys were either right there or not too far away. Um, what, what's it like? Let me let me start this way. Did you actually go on some of these missions to go retrieve fallen remains? Yes. What's it like the first time you do that and not really understanding or fathoming what you're about to walk into? Like, do you remember what you were thinking going into this whole thing? Well, because of even at the time, the limited law enforcement exposure that I'd had, um, I had seen all kinds of of deceased human beings, you know, whether it be from automobile wrecks, um, you know, suicides, homicides, you know, that kind of thing. So, so me personally, I just compartmentalized that my role morphed a little bit more into making sure that the younger Marines were able to process and literally process is, is a twofold definition process personally, what they were, what, what we were all doing and what they were doing in particular, but also, you know, what we call processing the remains. All right. You know, cause there was very, very tedious, systematic. Um, we, we didn't slow down the advance, but we also didn't get in a hurry because our record will show um, in Marine Corps history that we didn't have any, what's referred to as a dust win. We, we had zero unaccounted for. Now, granted, you're not always recovering full bodies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, especially depending on the, the catastrophic incident, if you know, firefight, okay. It may be bullet wounds or, or some fragmentation uh, from an explosion, something like that. But when AAVs and troop transports and trucks and everything carrying, you know, a half a dozen or more service members, you know, um, has a round dropped on it or rolls over an IED or something like that. You know, we had to wait for, you know, uh, like your, your previous guest, you know, uh, earlier today or a couple of days ago, um, did route clearing and that kind of thing. We couldn't just go rushing in necessarily because, you know, the, the MSRs were all, were all bugged, you know, eight ways to Sunday. Right. Right. So we, we'd get a path and we'd get in, and and we'd be able to do our work. What what did you tell since you had this law enforcement experience? What did you tell your Marines about what they were about to walk into? Did you prepare them all for it? I mean, after they see it for the first time, what kind of conversations are they having with you? I mean, look, I've seen bad stuff and I've seen, you know, dead mutilated bodies, right? It, it's just part of combat. Um, you know, that said, I, I don't everybody handles that stuff differently. Some people you know, are okay with it. Some people are not. And some people, you know, you get the point. So I'm just curious on how you, ha- you handled this as a, as an NCO and what you did, what, how you dealt with your Marines. Well, it was, if, if anybody was having, um, a moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if they were internalizing it and it would, it might manifest itself into like a personal trauma, you know, some people, may have had loss in their life of, of, of various form or another. And, and it might have, you know, restoked those kind of memories and that kind of thing. So I didn't sit down and do individual screenings with everybody. It was, there were, there was too many, too many Marines that we had gotten together, 
But I made sure that if someone was having an issue, because we were so large in the rear, you know, in Kuwait, that if I needed to unplug somebody and get them back to the rear and plug somebody else in in their place, then I could do that. I had that latitude, you know. Uh, and then as far as conversations, we were very, very much connected with the the chaplain corps, um, you know. And so I would say almost daily. Um, any of your soldiers, any of your Marines come to you after a, a, a given, you know, pickup and say, hey, Sarge, I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm not good. This, this, this is messing me up. I mean, were yes. those conversations out there? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, we had a very, very good balance, I would say, um, is a fair way to, to frame it, where we had a good balance of NCOs and staff NCOs um, that could see. And where I was a little bit higher up in the, in the umbrella, so to speak, because of my, my role and assignment at that point, the, the, the senior staff NCOs and, and the junior uh, uh, NCOs would let me know. Um, and, and sometimes they would take their own action and, and say, you know, we need to, we need to help this one out or we need to, we need to pull them and get them to the rear. It, it, it was this, it was similar, but it was still different in the rear where you're still processing remains but it's in a more confined, um, not confined, but it was in a, a, a more secure area where they weren't necessarily out, you know, in, in the, in the sand, in the, in the bush, if you will, you know, having to, to worry about, you know, what's to the left, what's to the right and what's to their rear. Whereas everybody had each other's back. What's it like, um, Knowing that you're seeing all this death and destruction, like, and you don't have to fire a shot in anger to see any of it. I mean, do you feel like you're, was there a sense that you're bearing an unnecessary weight? I mean, or a necessary burden for, you know, things that were out of your control? Me personally, no, because I always. Is that what you think? I'm sorry. Did others feel that way, you think? Some, some did. Some did. Uh, we, we had before we left, um, to go to Pendleton, we had a couple of conscientious objectors and what they were allowed to do is uh, out of no reprisal or, or retaliation or anything like that. We left them at the, at the training center where they were still on orders and still able to function, but they were just further in the rear. They were still conus. So, you know, um, and we actually had a couple um, that we sent back home after they had been out and had been exposed um, to the, to the, the visual trauma. And so we were like, Hey, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. So, so we, we had, again, we had a safety plan, um, you know, uh, as, as I would again, uh, kind of frame it where you now we couldn't send everybody home. Obviously we had a mission to accomplish, you know, and, but the onesies and twosies that, that were having the hardest uh, time grappling with the situation, you know, you're talking, 18, 19, sometimes 20, 21 year old. And I, I say kids because I'm old enough now where I think, yes. yeah, you know, I, I think I can say that now, given my position in life, you know, not as a derogatory thing, but they were just young. And have a life experience. They don't know. They don't know that kind of, you know, level of trauma or, or right. you know, never, never been, never been away from home, you know, thought they were going to join the service in the Marine Corps and go, well, I'm going to go to college or get a job or what have you. And I, 
don't think I'll ever get deployed. Well, you know, like I started to say earlier, you know, my first 11 years up until 2001, I didn't do anything very sexy nope. you know, or anything like that. You know, <laughs> I was in the armory doing my thing. Right. You know, transfer to Georgia and then boom. Was there was there one or two particular cases that stick out to you still to this day? Yeah. Yeah. The uh, look, I, I don't I'm not necessarily looking for gory details, per se. Uh, if you'd like to share them, that's entirely up to you. It's your story. But I just for the audience sake, I'm not asking you to tell me. Oh, I saw this in his ear. Was what you get the point? Like, yeah, you know, no, no, no. I, I don't mind the details. Go ahead. That's up to you. But I'm just curious, you know, which ones sort of stayed with you? Because after a while, you have to assume there's a certain numbness you get to this, and the compartmentalization of it, which we could talk about here in a minute, almost becomes dangerous sometimes because you don't ever process what you have just went through. Very, very much so. Yeah, very much so. So, um, I ask, which ones stick out to you for a reason? Well, the 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 AA the, the the vehicle the AAV in Nazaria was one um, because there was there were so many folks that were in um, that vessel um, and you know there wasn't much left of anyone inside you know so we were we were receiving back you know limbs um, and and you know thankfully in a way. Um, we, we would we would obviously wear one dog tag um, around our neck and then the other would go in a left or a right boot. I think that was almost universal with the services over there that were on the ground. And so that was how we, um, in part, how we were able to identify, you know, a lot of folks. So that was one. We had an we had an F-18 go down in 2005. And um, unbeknownst to the recovery crew, um, because we were we were located right next to the uh, the SSTP, which is a surgical shock trauma platoon where all the docs were, you know, and, and rightfully so. So if someone came in and, and expired, we were right next door, essentially, to not be parading someone around on a gurney or, you know, a, a litter or something like that. But this F-18 pilot um, came in and he actually had pin flares on him. So everybody's, you know, John Brown hind part sort of slammed shut a little bit going. We just brought this person, this service member in with, you know, essentially live explosives. So I was able to work with, you know, EOD was, they were hours away. Oh, so, you know, um, obviously, you know, they, they had their mission and, and everything like that. And we just didn't have the we didn't have anybody where we were at TQ um, that was on a rotational, you know, basis where they were coming back and getting, a, you know, a little a little rest and respite. You know, so we didn't have that. And so using common sense, you know, I was able to remove the flares and, and do a cursory on the, the rest of the remains and ensure the safety of the folks, the Marines, you know, they're at the collection point that, um, that they could do their, do their work and, and, and feel safe. And there were a couple of them that said, Hey, we trust you Gunny, but you know, we, we don't know. And so therefore I had to get Marines together, you know, you know, in a, in a hurry, you know, to be able to process, you know, the, the pilot. Right. And then the last one, um, 
and I don't mean to, I'm sorry to jump around, you know, between 03 and 05, but it was basically the same mission. Well, 03, we learned a lot. Um, and we started writing the SOPs for what's now the mortuary fit with a personnel retrieval and processing unit that is also uh, at the reconnaissance compound there in, uh, in Smyrna. And um, in, o- in 05, we were additionally tasked with recovering um, military age males, the, the Amans that were there in the villages and there in the cities that, that we were operating, that the, the, the victor units and the, and the, the uh, infantry were operating in. And so um, we recovered uh, two small children um, that were, you know, casualty of war, you know, essentially. And they, they weren't the only ones, you know, we had, we had civilians, we had contractors, we had, uh, and that was the expansion from 03 to 05. It wasn't just the services, but what, I don't know at what level the Department of Defense or, or Joint Chiefs or whatever saw what was happening with the collateral damage to the, the civilian population over there. And so we got additionally tasked with if there was a situation like that, that we would also recover the civilians and get them back to the family members or their, their, their village, you know, um, their outlying area, you know, whatever. So we, you know, we became that arm of, you know, we had that added to it. The, 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 when I talk to, whether it's medevac pilots, docs, uh, you know, medics themselves, they always seem to get stuck the most on the children. <laughs> they never forget the children, the casualties that are children or the children they couldn't save because, well, I mean, obvious reasons, right? I mean, one, they're not supposed to be in combat. That's number one. Number two, um, you know, it's just that understanding that there's you know, a, a young life taken way too soon. And, you know, the idea that uh, you couldn't save them is it weighs a lot on people's souls. So I certainly I certainly understand that. Um, at what point for you does recovering remains? Does it ever get personal? And I guess what I mean is, you know, after a while of doing it, you detach yourself emotionally from it just as a defense mechanism. Right. I mean, without being callous, and I think anybody who's been in combat can understand. Uh, so if you're a civilian and you're listening, you get to a point where you go, it's another dead body. Got it. Noted. Okay. Like you see enough, like there's enough, you know, uh, bad things that happen. You just kind of get used to it. Hey, okay. A bomb went off. Get your head out of your ass. Keep going. Like, you know, like you, you don't ever, you just start to become numb to it. As I said before, I say all that to say the, the processing of remains and bringing home any part of a fallen soldier is so important. One, because obviously we don't leave anybody behind. That's number one, right? Number one. Yeah. We're still searching for MIA and POWs and everything else that we presume to be dead at this point in time, but we never stop looking. But two, I mean, to give the family some sort of solace, some sort of comfort, even if you're only returning a body part, um, at what point did it, I mean, what, what, what level of personal was that as I stutter with the question here? Sure, sure, sure. Um, for me, me personally. All right. So this is a, this is an opinion of one. All right. You, you can talk to 50 other people, Marines or, or service members, soldiers, Navy, Air Force, whatever. And, and everybody's maybe going to have their, their different personal take. So with me, every one of them were personal because, because um, just to, to digress for just a moment, 
not only was the Marine Corps, you know, huge for me um, in my late teen years. Well, my my brother was murdered in 1992. And subsequent to that, my dad committed suicide in 1993. So, you know, I've dealt with it, um, you know, in a variety of ways, some constructive, some not so constructive. But to me, and, and it also on the on the law enforcement side, every time I got called to a, a, a deceased person, um, it was always personal um, because of my family history and my exposure, you know, um, to what had happened to immediate family members. So I, I took it very, very literally and very, very seriously, which no one that I was ever associated with didn't, you know, because it was, you know, I, I say this and it's not to, to gloat or sound braggadocious, but I think that sometimes people fed off of me um, to maintain as much positivity um, as we could, uh, given what we were tasked with having to, to accomplish. And, and again, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that the record speaks that, that we had zero dust winds. So what would happen is we would get them to whichever collection point, 03 Kuwait or 05, you know, Iraq. And um, if it was in Fallujah, they would process there and then return the remains to us at the, the, the main collection point. And we would do, and, and for that matter, Al-Assad, uh, we would receive everything. Um, even though they'd been processed, we'd go over the paperwork, do a, you know, double check, what have you. Um, and then we would do a, the dis- dignified transfer, um, with the C-130s. Um, and there was a movie, <clears throat> I don't watch it very often, but there was a, a, a very good movie with Kevin Bacon. It's called Taking Chance. Um, if you've never seen it, uh, I, I would encourage you to do so because it picks up with Kevin Bacon as a, a Marine Lieutenant Colonel who volunteers to go to Iraq to receive the remains um, from the, for the command uh, of a Lance Corporal from, I want to say it was from Montana. And it basically picks up where we left off. We never sent anybody with the remains, they were always escorted with folks on the transport, whether it was a, a you know, helicopter or C-130, what have you. Um, but it, the story picks up where he receives remains and, and, and gets the uh, Lance Corporal back to his family. And he was, it was very, very moving. <laughs> and um, it picks up the, the, the process, if you will, where we, we, re- we relinquish control of the remains and, you know, the, the command liaison would then escort them back to Dover. Um, they would do the, the DNA uh, processing at that point, the, the very sophisticated uh, and, and, and do verification on our work. And, and then obviously that would go, you know, further down the line for funeral arrangements, family contacts, you know, et, et cetera. You know, so but they were they were all, you know, personal. I can't remember, you know, every single name. Um, we, we did in those two years that I, I deployed with that mission, we did, uh, we did over 600, um, in, in those, those two blocks of time. And so, um, and, and again, some of them were locals, 
from from the the indigenous area, you know, in in TQ, you know, but we were we were all over the AO, like we we said early on, is you know all the way out to the Korean village, um, Heat, Haditha, Ramadi, Fallujah, Al Assad, everything, everything in that province was ours, you know, when it came to when it came to recoveries. I mean, I want to answer both questions, but I want to kind of backtrack a little bit um, because I'm wondering how overwhelming, if at all, this got. I mean, after the first deployment, was there ever a sense you're like, okay, I don't want to do that mission again. Like, I'll go back, but I don't want to do that again. Um, And when you get called back for the same exact mission, are you like, is there any of you that's like, I don't want to go through this again? I mean, how do you not get affected by it? Well, that's where... I'll, I'll get on. I'll, I'll touch on a little bit of a stump, um, but that that maybe if we don't run out of time, I'll, I'll, I'll dive more in, a little more deeply into that. So the short answer was no. You know, my unit again was ta- you know was ta- you know if they told me to go peel potatoes, you know to to feed the masses, you know then then I would have done that. You know, you know I had no misconceptions about you know. You know, the value, you know, the mission orientation, the value of the mission and, and, and the overall success and the overall accomplishment. So I think I started to allude. Um, I was approached between 03 and 05 um, in Korea and said um, I was told, hey, we're pumping out again. We're going back in 05. You can either go with this group. Or you can go with the follow-on group that would that would be our rip, that would be our replacement. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go with the I'll go with the primary. And and so in January of 05, you know, only 16 months after having been over there, you know, I went I went back, you know. But again, the the learning curve was it was steep, but we had good commanders and good officers in place and good senior enlisted that we had a much, much better grasp the second time around than we did um, the first. Now in 04, when Fallujah was hot and, and going on, we had Marines living with the Marine, with the remains in the potato factory in Fallujah. And so you can imagine, you know, you got rancid potatoes and you've got remains, you know, um, you know, yeah, so that weighed that weighed heavy on some folks, uh, and there were guys in the group, probably like you know, and and you or you've heard tell of, they would they would come home and stay for shoot 30, 60, 90 days, and they were gone again, attached to somebody, you know, and they just kept doing, they just kept racetracking it, and they would go and you know, not always with mortuary affairs, you know, I, I'll qualify that. But they would they would link up and and join another unit and they'd go right back to the fight and they did it time and time and time again. So I guess to really come full on on your question is the groups that were selected in 05 as compared to 03, because we'd already been in the conflict now at that point for you know 18, 20 months. And the 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 trepidation of the of the casualties and and the the deaths had gone way, way down. All right. So rather than having another group of 500 plus go back over in 04 and or 05 and then years beyond the, the two groups that went in January and then we got replaced in September of that year, 
they were basically handpicked, you know, and it was, and they were given the option, you know, again, with no reprisal to say, no, I don't think so, you know, kind of thing. So we went back with a much, much uh, scaled back group in, in, in 05 um, than we had in 2003. And, and they were the ones that either handled it the best or they wanted to serve. They got something out of the, the 2003 evolution. And they were like, this is about the most honorable thing other than, you know, taking a bullet for your buddy to your left or right or, or whatever, you know, um, and some would debate that, but I don't, you know, but, but collecting the remains and making sure that we got our service members, our brothers and sisters back home to their families was, was tantamount that there was nothing more important than, than that, you know? So. I, I, I agree. It's an interesting mission. Um, one that I would never, I could never do. I just know myself. Um, and, and I'm wondering at any point in time, was this guy who signed up for the Marine Corps and wanted to be all gung ho. Is there any part of you that's like, Hey, I actually want to get in the fight, not just deal with the after effects. Honestly, um, if, if I had been called to actually, you know, throw lead at the enemy or, or to lay suppressing or covering fire or anything like that, if we were out on a recovery or anything like that, well, then of course, you know, I would, I would have done it, you know, without, without hesitation or remorse (laughs) for that matter, you know, um, but, you know, I'm going to tell on myself, you know, it, it was good to be where we were set up to do the mission and how we were able to do it. Now we, you know, I'm not saying that we were sitting around in hammocks in 2005 waiting for remains to roll in. No, we were still pushing, we were still pushing sticks, you know, to all these various locales, you know, where the fighting was the heaviest or we had gotten, I believe it was, um, we were there for the elections in 2005 and we were also there for Phantom Fury. Um, and, you know, we, so we didn't get to the point, our, our level of engagement, our forces didn't get to that level where they were pulling folks like us, where we had a very specific mission. We were, we weren't babied or, but we were treated a little differently by the, by the commanders because of everything we've been talking about for the last several minutes about, you know, the trauma, the process, the, the internal processing and, and that kind of thing. So I have to give credit where credit's due from the standpoint of we were, we were already stretched psychologically. Yeah. So to, to send, young Marines or, or folks with no experience other than a rifle range to go and get in full scale engagements or something of that nature was, was not smart. And the higher up saw that and said, okay, if we get to the point and the poop has hit the fan, then we'll, you know, all hands on deck, you know, every Marine's a rifleman. All right. But it didn't get to that point. And the, the commanders that we had, not only my OIC, but the battalion commander, the gang force commander, everybody up and down the chain knew who we were. 
Right. You know, because, and they would come a couple, it didn't take but about one visit to the collection point where we had, you know, a couple of generals, we had a couple of, you know, Fulberg colonels, lieutenant colonels, you know, staff members. I guess partly it was to check on our welfare, but I think there was some morbid curiosity as to just how we operated from, from that level of, um, of supervision. And they would come and they would see, and they were like, holy crap. You know, I'm, I'm really watching my, my language just to not turn anybody off, but I could be real colorful. But, you know, they, they had that oh crap moment and they're like, whatever we need to do for these people to get them through. And this goes again back to your question. I, I do digress just another moment is we were scrutinized, scrutinized is one way to put it. But with the medical corps, you know, with the corpsmen with the docs, the psychological folks that were on station. Um, and then when we got back to CONUS, got back to our unit in the, in the stand down time before we got cut back loose off of orders to our, our families and civilian lives, you know, they had afforded the opportunity for counseling um, and to get whatever they may not have gotten off their chest in theater to get it off their chest before we turned them loose back into society, you know, and I'd say that there was a high percentage of success with that, but there were still some folks that you know couldn't be reached um, and went, you know, off the rails a little a little bit. Um, but since '05 to now, currently, the the jumps in um, well-being for that particular unit. Not that everybody doesn't deserve it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking anything away from a grunt or an infantryman or a, a you know machine gunner or a mortarman or a pilot or anything like that. But the the volume of which we saw what we did, you know, 600 plus, you know, coming through a collection point, there was a there was a tiny little there was a bit of you know, well we're gonna we're gonna look out and this is a tricky thing to, you know, to get into. We were, we were on the radar as far as coming back from the mission where we were afforded opportunities to get whatever services that we felt that we might need. Right. Put it, put it like that. No, I, I understand. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and for, for, for the audience out there listening, you know, I mean, I saw value in this, um, because, you know, we spend so much time on combat and we, we talk about the effects of it and, and what it is and everything else. And look, you know, I've said this a hundred times on this show that not everybody gets a kick down the door and bring a bad guy to justice. That's just not the way the military is structured or works and nor should it be. Um, everybody's got a piece of the pie, but this is just one of those pieces that so few do. Um, so few want to do. Um, and it, it is one of those things where the after effects of it are lasting uh, on a lot of people. So I felt like it was important to share this uh, and, and understand it because I think that, you know, this component of it is almost never talked about. We just deal with the emotion right now. The, the physical part of this whole thing that has to happen is, is really, really important. Again, it goes back to that whole thing. We don't leave anybody behind. It doesn't matter if we bring back a pinky, we have to get something. Uh, yes. That is, you know, that that's an important mission for all of us. So 100%. 100%. So that that's, if you don't mind, that's a decent segue. Um, and we can circle back and close any loops that, that you, that you would like, but if, if, and I'll speak to the audience just, you know, briefly, if there's 
any service member that's within earshot of this that deployed or maybe even didn't deploy, but they were ripped away from their family, you know, put on a base for, you know, and I know the army had it worse than we did. The Marine Corps put their foot down and said, okay, we're not putting Marines in harm's way for any more than seven months at a time. Now the orders, the orders were for 12 months, but that was the workup, the deployment, and then the post phase return. All right. So yeah, I was on orders in 05 for 12 months, but I was only in theater for seven. All right. From, from February to September, the army had it far worse where they were getting tapped with 18 months consecutive. They might get R&R in Qatar or they might get a, a family wellness you know, shot back home. But that created a little bit more angst where, oh, I'm home. I don't want to go back. You know, I'm home. And so that wasn't you know, it, it, it worked out the majority of the time, but there were some you know incidents and issues where service members said, <laughs> you're going to have to come find me. You know, I'm not going back, you know, and, and, you know, depending on the exposure, rightfully so. But if there's a service member out there <clears throat> that it doesn't matter, you know, I, I did 30 years as a career reservist. All right. I, I'm proud of that. But, you know, that was my one weekend a month, extended ATs, two weeks a year, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you did two years on, you know, two years, four years, six years, 10 years, and you got out. My role right now, like I said, it was a segue to reaching out to veterans, you know, get your service records. You can go to any VA community-based outpatient clinic. They've got brochures, pamphlets, whatever, helping you get your service record, your medical record, anything like that. You know, if you had a hangnail on active duty because you were subject to presidential recall orders, you need to collect your information and go to a veteran service organization. And I, you know, the the main one that helped me um, with the VA was the Georgia Department of Veteran Services. Now you can go their VSOs at the VFW, the American Legion. There, there, there are several that are out there. All right, you just you just pick the one that you're most comfortable with. You know, just somebody that will advocate for you that knows what they're talking about, but that will advocate for you to get services at whatever level that you need. Maybe your ears ring, you know, maybe you've got bad neck or back issues, what have you. You've got heart issues, you know, hypertension, hypervigilance, you know, pe- you know, combat stress, you know, any anything like that, you know, is to get the care and get the services that that you deserve and that and that you that you rate and and be healthy and be smart, be wise and take care of yourself because you're good to no one. If you can't take care of yourself and you can't take care of your family, you can't meet responsibilities and obligations. You know, um, it's heartbreaking to hear about the number of veterans, you know, out there that they either don't know, don't know how or are just, you know, so closed off again, talking about compartmentalization, it's, it's a process. You have to be willing. You have to be willing to take the step and let someone be your shepherd and get you through to the services that you need. You know, that that's my part of my stump, if you will, part of my message. You know, I wanted to at least touch on, touch on today with, with you. And I appreciate the opportunity, but you know, um, don't wait because it, 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 it I can honestly say that when I filed with the VA back in 2012 and 2013, um, 
it was it was arduous. It was it was tough, you know, because the VA is so large and they serve so many veterans and everything that, you know, it takes a while for you to get either confirmation or or, uh, you know, um, approval or a rejection or something like that. You know, and if you get rejected, file again. Be that squeaky wheel. Be that squeaky wheel. All right. Whether you get, you know, you know, a rating of, let's say, of 10 percent or, or some somebody's out there walking around right now that, that should be 100 percent permanent in total. And they just don't even know it, you know. Um, so I would say, you know, don't wait because it is a process. It does take time. Uh, so I'm, I'm here by phone where I've helped since I've retired and had more more time. I've probably helped going on a dozen a dozen service members get in contact with um, with the VA or with the service organization so that they can push forward. And I get nothing out of it except for the personal satisfaction of saying, hey, I, I helped someone. You know, um, my whole life, whether it's been Marine Corps and mortuary affairs or law enforcement, my whole life is adult life anyway. Once I got out of my funk, you know, it's been about helping people, you know. And so there's no reason for me to stop or slow down now just because I'm air quote retired. You know, it's it's a matter of if there's somebody out there in need, I don't have all the answers, you know, but I I know people who have answers and I might have to contact three or four or five individuals to get a person pointed in the right direction. So, you know, I have no magic bullet. I have no magic pill or anything like that. But I know people that know people that know people. And for the sake of getting someone a service that they may they may need and think, oh, well, I didn't do 20 years or I didn't do 22 or 25 or 30 or whatever. I don't rate it. That's not accurate. That is not accurate. Um, just for the sake of the audience, you know, as a career reservist, I will um, just tout some of your other kind of assignments across the years because they're worthwhile. I mean, you were all over the globe, Hawaii, Estonia, Latvia. Uh, where else am I missing here? Um, Korea. Korea, yep, Australia at one point. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, you did it all uh, as a reservist. You know, I mean, you, you can have the best of both worlds, folks, just for a message out there for any young people who might be listening to this. It's okay, okay to be a citizen soldier. It's okay to be a civilian soldier or more Marine and, and, and do them both. It, it doesn't make you any less than anybody else. Uh, I've done them both. I've been on active duty. I've been in the Guard. I'm transferring to the reserves. I mean, it's, you know. Um, it's service, right? And that, that's the most important thing. Um, I do want to ask you real quick, you know, about your civilian law enforcement background and everything else. I mean, you were a bomb technician um, and you also uh, were, were a special agent for GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigations. I'm just curious because this case was very popular here in Georgia and a lot of people may have heard it, but the Ahmad Aubrey case and trial that went on uh, down here in Georgia, I noticed that was on your 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 list of, uh, uh, of assignments, so to speak, just out of curiosity, what was your connection to the case? At the time when we got involved, um, nobody really had a, a total and complete understanding as far as what we would find through our independent investigation. Right. And so I want to be real careful um, to not ruffle feathers or, or say maybe the wrong thing, but my connection was at the time um, I was in the, the crime scene investigations unit. So I went back and um, did some reconstruction, did some, uh, you know, obviously, you know, 
updated photography. We, we did drone flights, um, you know, things of that nature to, to reconstruct and recreate as best we could without literally um, getting too personal for the you know, people that were affected. Um, you know, the victim's family and then others, others involved on the other side. So, so that was, that was my role. We did a ton of, you know, so if I wasn't, you know, messing with a drone or taking photos or, or doing, you know, reconstructions or whatever like that, um, you know, Google, Google images and, and things of the like, then we were out pounding the pavement and we, we did probably, I don't know how many interviews we did in about three adjacent communities to where the events, you know, unfortunately took place, um, in the neighborhood. Um, but we did, and that was all, you know, part of the, uh, part of the case file. And, um, I certainly was not any part of the lead or anything like that. I was, you know, part of the task force that was, that was put together, you know, to, to get to the bottom, um, with the information that was out there and available, um, that we could find out. And so, um, that's what we did. You know, the, the trial unfolded such as it did. Um, you know, when you have that many attorneys representing that many people, um, then it, it, it can be a little muddy to, you know, to say the least, you know, um, so I, I didn't, I didn't have really anything to do with the, the court aspect of it. I, right. I, I did my work, turned it into the case. Oh, and then- again, I, I, just for some background that doesn't involve you saying anything. Um, Maude Arbery was a, a young black man um, who was out for a run. He was accosted by two or three white gentlemen who uh, thought he was trying to break into properties. This is down in southern Georgia near Savannah, down in that area. Uh, and long story short, they accosted him and they shot him and killed him. Um, what had happened on the side, for those who aren't familiar with the case, you can Google it. But the DA down in the county over there um, had muddied the waters through some, let's just say, questionable ethics in the way they handled the initial investigation of the whole thing. Uh, which took a delay in actual arrests happening and charges happening and so on and so forth. Hence the independent investigation that you had referred to before uh, that the GBI had taken a part of to sort of lay out the rest of the events without any sort of, uh, um, you know, cloudiness that uh, was otherwise done by the original people. And, and they had to actually move the trial out of the county that the crime happened in to a different county just to make sure that everything was on the up and up. So, uh, that's sort of a Reader's Digest version of, of the background of it. But it, it made national news if you were under a rock at some point in 2021. Um, you missed it. But if you weren't, you probably heard something about it along the way. So uh, leaving the politics out of it, I was just kind of curious as to how you got involved with that when it was all the way down there. That's why it kind of struck a note with me. Sure, sure. So so the Bureau has um, 15. They have multiple offices. Sure, yeah, that, I figured that much, but I just didn't realize you would have to go that far. Well, I was actually working down there. My office actually did the did the oh, independent. Okay. Yeah, so I was right there in the. I was right there in the middle. Well, you know, talks between Marietta Smyrna and Peachtree Corners. I didn't know you got all the way down to like you know Glen County down that way. So I didn't realize that. Yeah, in a in a previous in a previous life, I worked with the majority of my career with the bureau of uh, the the Georgia Bureau um, northeast of Valdosta, which is off I seventy five. Yep. That was the, I spent a number of years down there and then. Got it. Okay. Now it makes sense. That, so now, then I transferred by my own request to the coastal office, uh, unbeknownst to me, you know, this was in 2014, you know, unbeknownst to me that somewhere in my future that this case would, you know, de- right. okay. develop. 
Well, that's why now it makes sense. I didn't know that you geographically were down there. I had assumed because I saw Marietta Smyrna and we had talked before recording Peach Street Corner, you were sort of Atlanta metro area, not not all the way down four hours away. So that's yes, why. Sir. Yeah, my wife and I are up in northeast metro Atlanta um, right now. And uh, and so uh, just enjoying enjoying life, you know, so and you're retired from law enforcement as well. Yeah, I did uh, 25 total years in law enforcement, uh, 30 years in the Marine Corps. Two pensions are working for you. Pretty nice, well, huh? That, well, that's that's a bit of another stump that I might get a little I might get a little heated over. Well, so and I'll be brief, you know, um, because this is a, a personal affront to, to to myself and many many others. So the reservists, um, and again, this is I don't want to dissuade anybody from your comments about. You know, it's a good it's a good opportunity there. there you get the GI Bill, um, you know, lots of benefits you can rate, you know, down the road, whatever. It's honorable service to join uh, any branch um, and, and serve your country. Uh, it, it's, it's marvelous. But reservists in general fall under Title 10. I think the Guard may or may not because they're a, yeah, they're a state asset, you know, but they, they, they do fall under the federal umbrella from time to time. So. Talking about two pensions. No, I know where you're going now. Yeah, oh. I have to wait until I'm 60 to to see one penny. Hopefully, I'll make it that long. You know, which is about another seven years. And so, um, you know, I wish that there was a different. And I've written letters. I've tried to talk with you know congressional folks and and all that. You know about you know if if you do 20 years in the reserves. All right. Let's just say round numbers and you separate, you retire because you rate a retirement at 20 years in one day. All right. How about a little severance or, you know, uh, or something? Maybe it may be an early collection of your of your quote unquote pension that and you don't have to wait until you know, 59 and a half or 60 or what have you, the, the, the government in this infinite wisdom kind of backdoored and rear ended the reservists. Well, yeah. Because I mean, look, you're not going to get an argument from me on this. You're actually going to get concurrence. I mean, when that was all put together, the garden, the reserves were never used to the level that they were in the global right. war. That, that has now changed the game. I've spent, you know, uh, even I've spent about six years in the guard on active duty. Yes. <laughs> so, that's in addition to my active duty time. So, yeah, I mean, there, there needs to be a course correction on that across the board. You're not I don't, and anybody who spent any time in, in um, who doesn't have an AFS, an active federal service pension, um, who doesn't have 20 years of active federal service would, would, would agree. They, they, I mean, we, we kind of got the short end of the stick here where and the idea is to hang on as long as possible. It goes close to 60 um, to collect a drill check well, as opposed to a retirement check. One one quick comment on on in that respect. So in in twenty in two thousand three, when the reserves got called up in mass, it wasn't long after that 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 the government said, um, "For we will we will shorten the the time period below age sixty for you to receive your your retirement, your pension, whatever you know, day for day, as long as you're ninety days or more on." orders are on active duty. Okay. Well, that was 03. What they did is they rescinded that mm-hmm. and they made it retro to 2008. So if you deployed before 2008, you don't get to cut that time off below age 60. Oh, that's nice. 
2008 and beyond is where you get the creditable uh, active duty time to shave off day for day. Again, 90 days or more shave off day for day below age 60. So that, you know, that's the little stick in my crawl a little bit, you know, and that's all I'll say about that. I'm not trying to pull Forrest Gump, but. Oh, I get it. I get it. Trust me. It's, a, it's a sore spot for guardsmen and reservists, a, a, a fight another day. But sure. look, I mean, it was, uh, it was excellent hearing uh, your story. Again, I, I saw so much value in having the conversation about mortuary affairs because it really, uh, it's an untalked about part of our military service and, and what you had to deal with and what you had to go through. And so many people who, um, you know, you see it on the news and it seems so seamless, you know, fallen soldier, oh, they're home. And there's a lot of legwork between that that goes on uh, that is that is tough and it's arduous and it's not easy. And again, as I said earlier, it's not a job that people sign up for. Uh, right. It's not. No, nobody, nobody enters the military going, I want to handle dead bodies. Like, that's just not... Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it, it's, it certainly doesn't it doesn't rank high on the list of, yeah, that's what I sign. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to jump out of planes. I want to, you know, I want to climb, you know, mountains and, you know, uh, scuba dive and the whole night. Check check out check out Taking Chance. It's with Kevin Bacon. Uh, I think it's it's well worth the watch. Um, you may have a Kleenex or something beside you. And, and, and it's it's got a little bit of, you know you know, emotional trauma attached with it. So just be advised, you know, um, you know, if you're not up for it, then, then by all means, don't, don't watch it, you know? Um, but it, it's a very, it's based on fact. Um, and it's a very heartfelt, um, well put together, um, you know, movie. Uh, and, and again, it picks up where we would leave off in theater and, and it, it, it chronicles the journey of how a service member would be returned home um, for their final resting place, you know? So, but, but to close out, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, I appreciate it. I hope I, I, I lended some clarity, um, lots to talk about. I could go on, but I won't, um, you know, so, you know, just want to say thank you and, and continue what you're doing, um, with, with the podcast. There's a couple other things, uh, one individual, you know, Mark, uh, who's under the weather right now? Uh, it'd be fantastic uh, uh, if you and him get linked up um, to hear his 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 story. Oh boy, uh, he's something else. Um, but he's doing the uh, he's on the uh, board and the foundation or yeah the uh, ground floor of the uh, United States Marine Corps Reconnaissance Museum because uh, he was a force force reconnaissance guy. Um, and, um, anyway, I can elaborate on that, you know, offline or whatever, if you're interested, but, but appreciate the suggestion. It's always great to have, uh, uh, personal suggestions from our guests, but yes, it was great to talk to you. I'm so glad we got a chance to connect and I know you're here in Georgia. So hopefully we'll cross paths soon face to face, but certainly I enjoy that and everything else. So Jimmy Carnes, thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Ra, Thank you. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 